Over a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite. We want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. As a pioneer in his field, Alberto Gregori was an early adopter of com computer navigation to improve outcomes in total knee replacement. In this episode, we explore the challenges that the NHS faces in restarting elective services. We chat about how the healthcare sector needs to evolve to cope with the backlog and the role that the private sector has in that recovery. So, already lost capacity to winter bed plan. So that was the first thing. Then this came along and we've lost the period of time of actually not being able to do anything. And then we're going to lose capacity because everything is going to be slower to follow guidelines, which are evolving. It's interesting, you know, in the space of two, three weeks, uh, orthopedic paratools are no longer the evil that they were three weeks ago in terms of spreading COVID. A conservative estimate that I'm discussing with the senior hospital manager yesterday is that we will lose 35% of our operating capacity to match the recommendation is just now for COVID safe operating. But the logic of how it's all going to be done is gently changing because we find more that we didn't know. And we're going to be expecting things from patients like, for example, being tested and then self-isolating for two weeks before surgery to then come in to a hospital that, by definition, is a high-risk environment. And we've abandoned the orthopaedic wards, the elective orthopaedic wards, trauma wards. Everything's just mixed in. And we know that 10% of trauma patients that are coming with hip fractures have got COVID. And that's some of the data that's been coming through because maybe when they're unwell, they fall over and break, or it's that population that already got COVID anyway, in the nursing homes. So we're going to have to change and go back to what we'd always said was the best thing, which was standalone orthopaedic areas that you know have a 
Machine post and the front door to stop everybody else getting in and isolating patients in the specialty. And maybe other specialties, elective specialties, will have to do that as well, such as vascular surgery, because the patients are relatively frail and in danger anyway, so exposing them unnecessarily is going to be difficult. We're going to have to ration. I think nobody wants to talk about the R work, but we will have to ration because we don't have the money or the resources to do more than we were doing beforehand. That's the irony of it all is we were struggling to meet our targets of 18 week and 12 week guarantees and had to use extensively the private sector before this happened, both in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And we now are faced with slowing the process down and we still have the same resource. We haven't got any more nurses, any more theatres, any more theatres. So we're still going to be stuck with the waiting list getting longer, but more quickly than it was before we came to this. And rationing is going to be the only way of dealing with that in the short term. It will be that the people will be told, you know what, you're too young to run replacement because. And people will use erroneous scoring systems. They'll use the absolute qualities as opposed to the gain in qualities. They will use blunderbuss ideas of if you're an ASA 2 or more, we're not going to operate on you, or if you're an ASA 3, you can't have surgery full stop. EMI will become used as a filtration tool to deny people surgery. It's already widely being used to close the gate to patients coming into the system. So they'll never be on the waiting list. And as you know, many health boards in Scotland, they have a BMI policy too heavy, you don't get to go to surgery. So it's going to be difficult. And the problem is, it's going to be difficult to cancel patients. We won't have, you know, if you see a patient next month who needs a joint replacement, an ankle fusion, whatever, an elective procedure, you can't really cancel that person as to the waiting time. The deterioration that may happen in the time that they have to wait. And if and when they'll have an operation, because Theoretically, if we are falling behind week by week and we categorise and prioritise our patients to severity, urgency category, one, two, three, four, five, or whatever, the patients that are in the middle and lower categories may never get to surgery because we don't have the capacity to deal with just the urgence and semi-urgence. We just don't have that capacity. Not if we lose 30% of our capacity with all that's going on. Because there are a lot of patients that will benefit, and they're relatively young, will benefit from surgery, but they're marked down because they need to have a vision at some point in their life. They're marked down because they've already got a reasonable quality of life. It's just they can't work, or they can't walk, or they can't run, or they can't do other things that give them a better quality of life. They are marked down, so they're going to go to the bottom of the queue. And it's going to be the elderly person who's 85 who can't walk because of pain will be prioritised. The cardiovascular causes of the hip or the tail is. They may be prioritised, pushing everybody else back. And yet the person that's able to go back to work after successful operations, the young person, it's not the old person. And our scoring mechanisms are too blunt to understand this. And that's part of our problem. But we're falling behind week by week before this happened, 
and we've just taken 30-35% of our capacity as it's been wiped out as well. How are we going to deal with it? It's impossible. Especially if we need to invest money, which we don't have. So I was speaking to my niece just down in London, and there's clearly a palpable anxiety around the relationship between the NHS and the private sector, which has always existed, and there's those that believe that the private sector should be wiped out altogether. And indeed, one of my younger colleagues had said, well, you know, can I help end the people in the private sector? They should just be made to wait. When I pointed out to him the fact that most of the people that are in the private sector as patients, one, they're still patients, and they're still having their operations cancelled. But secondly, most people that have treatment in the private sector are not people who have pockets laden with gold. They're actually um, people that work in the private sector for work in the sense that they are small and medium-sized business owners and they employ small numbers of people who are incidentally the ones that have been furloughed or are going to be made redundant at the back end of all of this. And they're the other half of society who brings in the revenue for the rest of the country. And so, as I say, there's an anxiety down in London and I think definitely in Scotland whereby there has been this kind of land grab by the NHS for the private sector, and now everything has to go through the NHS hub before it can be signed off. Hiding behind COVID is the reason why all these operations and investigations and treatments are getting cancelled. And the way that she described it is that medicine is now, and the NHS is now holding the rest of society to ransom. Do you think that statement is right, um, or does it resonate at all? There's a lot of different political views. The reality is that we've always had to use the private sector to do some of the work that needs to be done. And the person that's insured, either through self-insurance or company insurance, is still the same person that needs a joint replacement or an orthopedic operation or an elective procedure. And if they weren't done in the private sector, privately insured, they'd be done in the NHS. But the NHS can't cope with what they've got, let alone more. So the concept of saying, no, you can't have private practice is completely nuts. From a European law point of view, from a basic human right point of view, I don't think you can stop people doing private practice. I'd be very surprised if banning people from doing private practice would meet the basic legal arguments and justifications and would breach people's right to choose. That's an essential right, human right. And you can't say to people, you can't have private practice if you haven't got an alternative that is timeless and delivers. We haven't got that. So we need to accept that private practice is part of the solution. Now, one of the questions is, do we do what in England has been a popular option, is to use private practice as a fixed rate to do see and treat, choose and book. And that's been successful in getting work done. Or is it managed completely by, say, an NHS hub that decides who goes where? My experience has been that so far, a lot of the management waiting lists has been poor in terms of people relationships, in terms of respecting people's desires and needs and understanding them. They just become a number, and that's been a huge part of my difficulty in providing care for NHS patients who come into the waiting list initiatives in the private sector. Often they need both joints done, but they're being told, no, you have to have one done 
and then come back later, goes through the whole system, so two, three years in the system, to have the other one done. In the meantime, they're not getting benefit of the first operation, especially if they've got significant deformity. And when you try and have a discussion, you don't have a discussion with another clinician. You have a discussion with a pen pusher whose job is to limit demand, and that's wrong. So there's no doubt that private practice is necessary. The relationship, I think, with private practice and NHS will change. And it may well be that it drives prices down, which, you know, is a reasonable thing. We can drive prices down a little bit. But, you know, I'm seeing the private sector, has, especially the insurance sector, has been pretty brutal in how they've behaved. You know, they've basically not been paying out anything for elective procedures for three months. They haven't given anybody any money back for the three months. And the moment you have a patient who is becoming unemployed, even under the COVID, lost his insurance, and the insurance company said, well, we can insure you for £1,700 a month extra if you want to continue your insurance. You know, and his private operation had been cancelled because of COVID. So it was due to happen. They were going to pay for it. And now it's, we're not paying for it. And if you want it done, you're going to have to pay a fortune. So there's a, the insurance companies have done really well out of this in terms of health insurance. Okay, some of the other insurance companies. But it's interesting, a lot of insurance companies say it's an act of God. This is, you know, we're not paying out. So again, there's all sorts of things that will need to be sorted out later. But I can't see the private sector being banned in Bedford Commons, which is one of the rumours in Scotland. With the best people in the world, the NHS cannot meet its present obligations. It can't catch up on what it's lost. So the private sector has to be part of the answer. Now, how that happens needs to be negotiated. I think it can be done better at a lower cost. We've used models of seeing treat. We've used models of uh, minimising expense by doing lots of simple things that we can do, especially for our further away patients rather than having patients from all the way down to Glasgow from the island for two days with all their family and attendants and supporters. We can do all of this either remotely, which is one of the things that we've found out from uh, from the whole disaster the past two months. Remotely, you can get a good idea about what patient needs just by talking to them. It'd be interesting going back to talking to people as opposed to just a quick test and a quick in and out. And we can do things differently. We know that we can change we're thinking. We've had to. And we've had to change it several times in the past two, three months. You know, everybody thought, oh, the big problem is going to be you have to anesthetize all these patients and ventilate them. And in fact, that seems to be the wrong thing to do. We're using CPAP and other environments. And part of the problem has been thromboembolism, which wasn't really understood or expected. Part of the problem has been the multi-organ failure and the need for dialysis. There's a lot of things that have happened. And we've had to change the way we think and the way we work. Now, why can't we use what we've learned that, you know, we can fix it, we can change by doing something with the way we were beforehand. We needed to make that better. Yep. And there's lots of examples. Seven-day working, extended-day working. Uh, team working in different ways, ring fencing beds in a much more efficient way than 
fencing because ring fencing beds is is going to have to come from the COVID respecting testing distancing. We have to ring fence beds. And so, if the strategy at the beginning of lockdown, where we did what we did, and didn't have the benefit of hindsight at that point, if if that strategy is deemed to be defensible, is the current position where there is still inertia and still um, no definitive guidance or decision around when we actually do start elective procedures, um, is that defensible? Are we going to be subject? Are the lawyers going to have their heyday in two years' time? No, I think the problem is it is defensible because everybody is proceeding with a degree of caution. Some are more cautious than others. The guidelines that have been written, I've probably seen seven different sets of guidelines which have changed and evolved, and all of them are based upon what evidence we had running up to writing guidelines. Now, I'm involved in writing guidelines, and it takes a lot of reading, a lot of research to find the background of the best evidence for you to create a good guideline. And we just haven't got that evidence. It's coming fast and furious. Some of it is of dubious quality. There's been a paper um, from the Lancet that's just been uh, withdrawn on hydroxychloroquine. There's been another paper which may not affect the way we would write a guideline, but you know, New England Journal of Medicine paper, and you're thinking these are major journals that are withdrawing papers. Everybody was rushing to print and publish because we needed to expand and understand the knowledge of COVID. And the reality is that it takes time. Good science takes time. Some of the observational science doesn't take time, and it can be intuitive. And Stephanie Dancer's written some interesting articles about you know, just concepts of hand washing. You know, and it's interesting that you know a lot of the lessons we're learning again, lessons that you know were written up in the next ten by the bubonic plague. And uh, we're written up uh, with Ebola, we're written up with MERS and SARS, and the Spanish epidemic in 1918-1920, the concept of you know, double whammy. So there's a lot of stuff that we know and is intuitive. And the problem is there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. We think we know, and then when we actually look at science as it's catching up, we realise that's actually wrong. And a good example is the aerosol generation. What is aerosol? Is aerosol actually as important as we thought it was? Or is it droplet spread, which is probably more important? You know, how long does somebody remain infectious for? We still don't know that answer. We're giving numbers that we think will capture most patients. But there are cases being reported where infectivity is much longer than everybody thought. Has that changed the way we think? Is it not an act? We don't know. There's work in China suggesting that the C reactivated COVID particles in hospitals that have been deemed safe. And what does that mean? We just don't know. So I think it's fair for people to be defensive and slow and pragmatic. And that's going to be both in setting up guidelines and in setting up a return to inverse commas normality. And, you know, in time, people might turn around and say, oh, well, he did it very quickly and he was a good guy because, you know, it wasn't necessary. She was much, much slower and much more cautious and that was stupid. It wasn't necessary. 
but it could be the other way around as well. Interestingly, there's no doubles. There's no second waves that we know of. And yeah. So in, again, speaking to Chris in Singapore, so they've had a probably second, maybe slightly third wave, but again, the number's much less and it's been localised to the dormitories. So after the SARS, where they did have a lot of medics that were affected, that one of the hospitals that he currently works in was set up specifically to be able to cope with infectious pandemics. Um, I think public have a, an expectation, and in some ways a right to expect, that when they go into hospital, they are going into an environment that is ultra clean and is free from risk and free from infection, or is at least as much as it possibly can be. The great irony about this is that we have brought the infection into the hospital. We've brought the pandemic is in the hospital. The trauma is in the hospital, which for surgeons is very difficult because everything that we train for major instances, which are you know car crashes, building falling down, terrorist attacks, everything else where we go out and we manage patients outside the hospital. But this is now in our place of safety and very definitely at the beginning, I think that was a lot of the fear for personnel was that we, we were going into work to go into something that was unsafe. Yeah. But, but you still have an expectation, and there's been all the discussions about PPE and etc. but is part of the fundamental problem that we have in the UK the fact that we have this consistent mixture of elective and emergency and unscheduled care? Is this the big argument which says that we really do need to separate these two things? Well, I mean, I think it speaks for itself that we need to separate. We actually have separated. Most hospitals have been running a hot and cold full system where the patients who could have were treated in a completely separate place to the patients that were have some minor injuries and various other things. So we've already instituted that. It's going to be difficult to say, well, we can't do it anymore, we're not doing it anymore. And we've got no idea whether this is here to stay or whether it's another flash in the pan that will disappear over the next six months. We just don't know. But long-standing good practice is to separate patients with clean problems from patients with acute problems from patients with infectious problems. That's just good practice. It's always been good practice. It might not be financially attractive to people, but it's good practice. And I think patients... Suss the practice problem that they're going to hospital and might get infected. And that's why they stayed away. You know, 57% uh, attendances compared to the same time last year. You know, it's just a huge drop in attendances. a huge drop. People think, well, we'll get better. Because beforehand, they just went to hospital because they thought it was a safe place. Those numbers may never come back. It's one of the things that will maybe have changed forever. We don't know. So to change this tact ever so slightly, I mean, one of your great passions is education and teaching. And your daughter has followed you into medicine and has been in Ireland. What has been the challenge of education carrying on for medicine and surgery in particular during this time? And what would be your fears, but also your hopes for where that would go in the next two to five years? You can listen to the next episode with Alberta Provori right now. You don't need to wait until next week. Simply download from Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify.
In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies, and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more, or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Thank you.